Vale. My name is Cody Sullivan, and thank you for being with us. Here in Vermont, spring has begun to trace her fingertips over the cold winter skin, warming and melting everything she touches. The birds are returning, and the days are longer once more as the grip of night loosens every day. So perhaps it's bad timing, or perhaps it's a last hurrah that the titular piece in today's episode is set within December's snowy clutches. Yes, indeed, this is a very special episode, and we are so glad to have you here to join us listening to it. Make yourself comfortable as we share with you our grim tales from our own original grimoire. And be sure to tune in for the next episode, which will serve as the season finale of our program. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, this is Pulp. Now let's begin. Picture this. You're destitute without a home in 14th century Western Europe. Pandemic has spread to every corner of the continent, and bodies of the ill and deceased litter the filthy cobblestone streets. Your primitive mind reaches out for a reason why, helpless to see the spread of microscopic monsters washing over the populace. Naturally, many are calling this an act of God, for only him above could create a plague so wicked. For fear of your life, you turn to the church for absolution. And that is where we begin with this infectious tale written by Gustav Grift. This story is called At Cross Purposes. I am Gunther the Lame, who is now called Gunther the Trembler by those who survive in my abbey. I record these events in the hope that humanity will endure beyond the ravages of the pestilence which besets it, and that those who come after may learn to trust their better angels rather than the charlatans. I, who live on though hobbled long ago by this plague, can no longer live with the memories of what I witnessed in that October night. God forgive me. The pestilence had emptied Bamberg's streets of the living, save for those who were too poor to take shelter. Despite the Burgermeister's decree, the dead were piling up in the alleys. An emaciated man of indeterminate age, moaning and clutching his swollen breast, lay within a makeshift dwelling between a tanner's shop and a beer hall. It crawls over the city on silent feet. Men's souls shatter before it. It is the unmaker of civilization. (laughs) I placed my hand on his engorged and blackened underarm. Peace, brother. The Lord shall welcome you if you seek him earnestly without sin in your heart. The man laughed, and it was a terrible sound that gave way to coughing and blood. (laughs) The Lord... (laughs) The Lord of this place is coming, though far better it would be were he not. No, 
I long for the peace of oblivion. You, though, your road is long and terrible. He collapsed into fits, in issuing forth of blood, and the rolling back of his eyes left no doubt that he was dead. I prayed over him. It was all that I could do. As I finished, a sound echoed through the empty streets. A haunting chant demanded my attention. Brother Hansel glared toward the noise and spat on the ground. Disgusting! I do not know why it is allowed. The bishop should intervene. He pointed toward two score men, mostly in white hoods, chanting as they lashed themselves rhythmically with flails of knotted rope splintered with wood. At the end of each couplet, a mist of red would splatter the facades of shuttered homes and businesses. Easy, brother. They are desperate and have been led astray. Indeed, there was a leader. He seemed almost too tall to be believed, perhaps due to his long pointed hood. He held a scourge but did not whip himself, instead commanding others and occasionally beating followers. As they passed a small shop, a portly man of middle age ran into the street calling for the procession to stop. Please, cleanse my soul. Let me atone for my sins and restore the world to God on high. The lofty man looked down upon the groveling shop owner prostrate before him. Good, very good. His voice was musical and reassuring. He lifted his own flail over his head and brought it down with a crack across the merchant's quivering shoulders. With a cry of tremendous agony, the newcomer got to his feet, muttered his thanks to the leader, and was given a flail of his own from the back of the throng. This was not the worst of it, though, for as the chanting mass advanced, it became apparent to me that not everyone in this crowd was a penitent. There was a captive in simple brown robes, blindfolded and gagged, with his hands bound. He was shoved and periodically whipped by the mob. Though his face was obscured, there was something familiar about him. Deeply disturbed by this latest revelation, I approached the lofty man at the head of the column. He lowered his eyes to a level with my own. Stop, in God's name! What has this man done that you torment him so? That you wish to make penance, however misguided, is your business. Surely, though, even you know that true atonement cannot be forced upon the unwilling. Ah, a brother of the cloth. You do not believe, brother, because you have not seen. Follow us, and you will behold purifying grace. Or are you so weak in your faith that you dare not look upon its greatest mysteries? I said nothing, looking into those cold eyes which burned scarlet in their inky depths. The parade continued, and I knew that, regardless of his methods, the man was conscious of some higher celestial wisdom. 
I followed at distance, owing to my debility. Near sunset, I lost sight of the host entirely. Even so, they were easy to follow, because they trailed blood and bewilderment. At a crossroads, I encountered a penitent who had collapsed from exhaustion. Lest I should lose sight of the lofty man forever, I merely dragged him to the signpost and propped him up before continuing on. I came to a wood with branches which blocked out the sky, further darkening the moonless night, and then to the edge of a circular clearing. The assembly was there, gathered around their leader. The gagged prisoner stood secured to a squat stone structure in the center. Though he was a great distance from me, I felt the lofty man's eyes upon me as he began to speak. Good. Tonight we gather to purge sin from ourselves, but we are not the pinnacle of sin among men, no. We have recognized our hubris, our infidelity, our intemperance. But there exist among us those who would peddle their perversion as the world crumbles around them, ever increasing their earthly worth, all the while diminishing their heavenly prospects, yet still we are guilty. For have we not suffered them to live in our cities? Do we not See even now what punishment God levies against those who harbor his enemies. At this he whipped the ground in front of the prisoner's feet so that he whimpered and flinched. This man hath entered into a compact with the devil through his impure ways and vile arts. He and his ilk hath brought the pestilence to Bamberg. A murmur shot through the crowd, and the man in the center began to cower and weep. For too long you have suffered witches to walk among you. Will nobody here serve justice to this blasphemous wretch? With this, the lofty man produced a silver dagger and placed it so close to the man's throat that I began to swoon for fear of his intentions. With a swift upward flick of his wrist, however, the knife cut only the gag which had stretched around his head and between his teeth. Immediately the captive began to shout pleadingly, Please, do you not recognize the Bishop of Bamberg when he stands before you? In God's name and as his faithful servant, release me! The crowd began to howl and hiss. Blasphemy, they screamed. One of the onlookers lashed at a pitiful prisoner. I alone seemed to understand the gravity of the situation. Upon hearing his voice, it became clear to me that the tortured creature spoke the truth. He was none other than the bishop, Ignatius. Yet I did not intervene lest the crowd should vent their anger on me. The mob became wilder. 
more onlookers pressed forward, eager to torment the humbled holy man. The merchant, who had joined the procession, stepped out from the writhing mass, his features contorted with hatred. He screamed as he lashed out, and his whip caught his excellency as he cried out to the heavens. The crowd and the stone structure were painted in slick blood like wine as the wood-punctured rope tore a thick gash across the exposed throat. The glade went silent, save for the sound of gurgling and choking coming from its center. When it ceased, the lofty man placed his palms together and raised them to the stars. Hallelujah! The demoniac throng took up the chant, howling that blessed phrase as it was never meant to be heard. Their frenzy increased so that only the final syllable could be heard over and over again above the uproar. Just as it seemed that the terrible gathering must consume itself, a bone-shaking crack rent the air and the stone fragments grazed my face. From that terrible altar to which the bishop had been fastened, a monstrous sight appeared. Whipping forth from the wound that had opened in the stones were what appeared to be flailing red worms or serpents, moving entirely independently of each other. These writhing scourges reared back, cracking like whips, striking out at penitence. A dreadful slaughter ensued, For those who were not decapitated or disemboweled by the hellish apparition clutched at their groins or breasts. Before long, the clearing was quiet, save for the moans of those yet to die. The horrid appendages sprouting from the altar reared back, and at their center could be seen beady black orbs, ringed by what might have been hairs. Just beneath, a pair of long, yellowed teeth covered a maw. It screamed as the lofty man stepped from the shadows, chuckling to himself while surveying the carnage. Good, very good. He placed his hands on the thing from the altar, and there was a blinding flash as the nightmare of vermin blinked from existence. Still laughing, a horrid change came over the profane priest. His shoulders rose to meet his head as his white robes expanded, then burst. A gibbous form oozed out and clumsily began to wave folds of itself about. Still laughing, it took to the moonless sky and was gone. Only then did I feel the burning, crawling sensation beginning in my feet and creeping upward. The moans from the forsaken clearing had turned to death rattles. 
as the plague growths which had sprouted from the flagellants burst open. It was neither blood nor pus which issued forth from them, though, but a bounding carpet of relentlessly biting fleas. Beyond the Veil. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Pulp listeners, Cody Sullivan here. Do you take baths? If not, you should. And when you do, you should treat yourself like the grand ghoulie you are and use one of Crystal Witch Bath's finest bath bombs. Choose from a variety of fun shapes like skulls, cats, crescent moons, or the ever-popular sphere shape. So what makes Crystal Witch Bath so special? Well, get this. Crystal Witch Bath uses the finest dried lavender petals, rose petals, and essential oils to diffuse a potent cleansing scent that lasts. What's more, each bath bomb is encrusted with a unique stone imbued with magical properties. Looking to stabilize your emotions or enhance your intuition? Try a moonstone and rose petal bath bomb with notes of sultry vanilla and oak. Needing to clear your mind of negative thoughts? The beautiful amethyst and lavender skull bath bomb will dissolve those feelings like sodium bicarbonate in hot water. (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking. Cody, this is just another fake ad that's doomed to get my hopes up. Well, stop thinking that because the bombs are real. This soak is no joke. That's right. Take out your phone right now and go to Etsy.com and search Crystal Witch Bath, all one word, and see if I'm lying. I'm not, of course. But look, now you're already there, so check them out. These bath bombs and soaking salts make for a wonderful gift for that witchy guy or gal in your life. And once you try them, I guarantee you'll never want to slide into your roiling cauldron without one again. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to Etsy and search Crystal Witch Bath, all one word, and start soaking your spirit today. Crystal Witch Bath, proudly handmade in Vermont. if you would, to a snow-covered colonial home in New England. It's already December, and winter has laid down her most sprawling and thick blankets of heavy white snow. With great holiday cheer and merriment in the air, it's a little easier to ignore the sinking feeling in your gut that something isn't quite right at this little housewarming party. Every nerve screams and begs you to leave, but you can't understand it. Besides, it would be quite impolite to storm out of such a joyous soiree before supper even hits the table, right? Let's see if your intuition has any merit as we begin this next tale of magic and murder. This story's called All Snowed In. On this moonless night, 
A snowy colonial home in rural Vermont is flanked by snow-capped trees and rolling hills of slate and granite. Warm and inviting lights appear in every window, and from the crowded driveway where Blair was smoking her second cigarette before heading inside, she could hear the sound of sweet Christmas music playing within. As John approached her, she didn't take her narrowed eyes off the saccharine image of this holiday home. Well, looks like they started the party without us, huh? Yeah, while Mel likes to keep the trains running on time, they probably started right at six. Ah, good. Sounds like Ryan found someone to have a spine for him, right? I actually haven't met her yet, but Ryan must think she's something, all right. You know, considering they're married and all. So, how do you know Melissa, anyways? I'm her sister. Oh, right. What's in the bag? A housewarming present. Shit. Was I supposed to bring one of those? Don't worry. I'm sure your charming presence will suffice. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. Allow me. I'll get it, honey. I bet it's your sister. Isn't it just like her to show up late? Oh my god, Blair! How are you? Good to see you. Come on in and shake the snow off. And is that John Ramchick with you? Hey, what's it been? Two years? How the hell are you? Here, kick off your boots anywhere and come join the party. Thanks for the invite, Ryan. Here, happy holidays, or whatever. Oh, you shouldn't have. Thank you. It's good to see you, buddy. Hey, congratulations on the house. I thought it'd take you at least another couple years to join me in the homeowners club. It really does look beautiful. You don't know the half of it. I'll give you guys the tour after we get you some drinks. Hey... Tonight is going to be a great night. I can feel it. Really, I can. Hmm? All right, come with me. The living room was straight out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. A roaring fireplace provided the backdrop to a room filled with people, primitive antique decorations, and a heavily adorned Christmas tree. Above the hearth hung two large stockings monogrammed with an R and M. Oh my god, it's my beautiful sister. Come here. Melissa strode past the young man she was talking to and wrapped her sister in a large embrace. Oh, okay, this is happening? It's, uh, it's really great to see you too. Locked in her sister's embrace, Blair looked around the room only to see the faces of strangers. The lanky young man her sister had been talking to was wearing an ugly Christmas sweater and gave her a suggestive wink when their eyes met. There was a well-dressed man in slacks and a red cardigan sitting on the couch with a glass of eggnog. He barely looked up for a moment before going back to his phone and drink. Finally, there was a round man with a scraggly beard leaning over the coffee table from his chair as he munched greedily on the crudité, cheese board, and charcuterie. I wasn't sure I was going to be invited over here. I thought I must have missed the housewarming when you guys bought this place and I never heard from you. I thought you guys just bought this place. No, 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 no. We actually moved in way back in June, but Melissa thought we should postpone the housewarming until we got a bit more settled in. 
Not to mention, it's so hard to get people together for one party, we thought, hell, might as well double down on our Christmas party at the same time. <laughs> What's the matter, Ryan? You forget how to do an introduction? <laughs> Some manners you've got. <laughs> so, who's this handsome guy, honey? Oh, right. <laughs> you two haven't met. Uh, honey, I'd like you to meet one of my greatest old friends and the worst roommate I have ever had, John Ramchick. John, everybody! <laughs> Don't listen to him. If it wasn't for me, Ryan still wouldn't know how to fold his laundry. <laughs> Not true. Not true. Uh, and this stunning woman who bears a striking resemblance to my lovely wife is my sister-in-law, Blair. How are you doing? Slightly uncomfortable now. Thanks. Oh, she's just kidding. She just needs some eggnog to warm her frozen heart. Blair, John, I'd like you to meet Ethan Webster. He's a friend of Ryan's from work. And this is James, who's visiting all the way from Oregon. He's the one driving that sporty-looking car out front. He and Ryan went to high school together. Isn't that right? Yeah, we did. Ryan and I used to be inseparable. Living in a town of 1,200 will do that to you, though. Right, Ryan? <laughs> ah, it's good to be back to the old stomping grounds, though. James is the owner of a real estate brokerage in Portland. Yeah, so if any of you are sick of living in the middle of nowhere, I'll be here all night and would love to talk business. Get me tipsy enough and I'll even consider a friendly discount. Maybe. The man who was eating all the hors d'oeuvres hadn't said anything since Blair arrived. And, uh, what's your name? I'm Derek. I worked with Melissa at the restaurant for a few months this spring until she quit. Really, I'm just here for the free pizza and beer. <laughs> uh. Uh. Hey, can I have one of your smokes? Uh, yeah, sure. How'd you know I smoke? Your jacket smells like an ashtray. Thanks. Awesome. Blair, John, what are you drinking? Huh? We've got bourbon and eggnog. Uh, a fine Bordeaux that's been breathing for a while. Um, I got a few good IPAs. There's some peppermint schnapps if you want some hot cocoa. What do you want? I'll have a beer. Yeah, me too. Okay, two IPAs coming right up. As the party progressed later in the evening, a swell of heavy, wet snow in the area conditioned and soon. Large clumps of flakes began assailing the ground from overhead. Patches of snow began to grow, spread, and coalesce like hastened white mold. After a couple of hours, Blair could wait no longer to address the severity of the storm outside. And I watched the dolphins swim away. And from that day on, I knew that if I could teach myself to swim, then I could teach myself to do anything. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, two, I don't... Hey, guys. It's really starting to come down out there, don't you think? Yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, let me check my phone. I didn't think it was supposed to accumulate much. Where the hell's my phone? I heard two to four inches at most. Hey, I've got eight inches over here. You wish. Maybe we should think about calling it soon? That driveway is a nightmare as it is. No, 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 no. Listen, we've got plenty of room for everyone here. We have beds, we have couches. I would hate 
for anyone to have to drive at night through this kind of storm. But if something happened, ugh, I just really couldn't live with it. Not to mention, we've all had a few drinks now as well. Everyone is welcome to stay the night. The storm should be over by the morning, and we got a guy who plows our driveway. So I'm sure we'll be able to dig your cars out then. I really must insist. Well, I was going to pay for a hotel, but a penny saved is a penny earned. Not much in the way of accommodations up here with all this undeveloped land anyways. Someone really ought to put a proper hotel in this area. A lot of tourists up here, I'd imagine. And I haven't crashed with old Ryan Crane since we were young men. Hey, maybe we can play a game of beer pong. And I can show you I still got it. I was really hoping there'd be pizza here. If I'm staying, better call in delivery now. Anyone see my phone? Oh, you know, I thought I saw it in the kitchen earlier. It's probably on the counter. The number for Paul's is on the fridge. I don't mind staying. Let's not be shy and uh, get into our comfortable clothes. Blair, did you bring your PJs? Screw you. Mel, listen, I don't feel comfortable staying here. Mom has Jasmine right now, and I told her I'd be back before midnight to pick her up. Blair, I'm sure Mom will understand, and that Jasmine will be fine without her perfect little mommy for one single night. Right? She's right, Blair. You've been drinking. Better to be safe than sorry. Please, for Jasmine's sake. There. I just sent Mom a text letting her know you're staying here. Everything is going to be fine, really. I can't even imagine how nervous you must be being this far away from your little angel. But it'll be alright by morning. Okay, I guess. You win. Yeah, that's the spirit. I knew you'd come around. Tonight... There's magic in the air. Alright, I'm gonna go make some cocoa. Honey, would you help me get some pillows and blankets together for our guests? Of course, sweetheart. So, anyone else feeling the magic in the air tonight? Well, after a few more drinks, I might. I remember Ryan saying weird shit like that all the time when we were living together. The guy was practically a witch. A warlock. Anyways, he used to have all these books on the occult, the Keys of Solomon, Ouija boards, and crystals and shit. It just got worse the longer we lived together. Eventually, I hit my breaking point and threw out a bunch of his weird gothic shit, and he ended up confronting me at a party about it. He started swinging on me, but I was a pretty good boxer in high school, so I knocked him on his ass in front of everyone. He was out cold, and a couple of people carried him out. I only saw him once after that where he apologized for what had happened and hoped we could remain friends. It was unexpected, but I accepted, and until today, I hadn't seen him since. I want to know more about Jasmine. Blair, you look far too young to be a single mother. Who in the hell said I was a single mother? No one. I just... I noticed you weren't wearing a ring, so I assumed... That's none of your business, you creep. Don't talk about my daughter. So, how old is she? I really don't want to talk about her. Not here, anyway. Ever since I had Jasmine, things have been different between Mel and I. Once I stopped going to high school, I was unemployed for a while. I couch surfed at friends' and neighbors' places before eventually moving back in with our mom. 
I think I was an embarrassment for Mel. She never spoke to me, never returned my calls, and I heard through the grapevine she was saying all these really hurtful things about me. That I was lazy, unmotivated, that I was a sloth, and I'd never amount to anything. That all changed when I had Jasmine. Suddenly, she became the perfect aunt overnight. She was at the hospital for the birth, she held Jasmine before our mother could, and she sobbed hysterically while she held her. After a couple of months, I had to ask her to give me some space. She had started reading all of these books on raising children, and suddenly, she was a fucking expert about everything. It was obnoxious, and I felt like she was trying to take my baby from me or something. It was super weird. Anyway, I don't talk about Jasmine around her anymore. She's probably just jealous and can't wait to become a mother herself. Fat chance at that. Rumor around the office is that Ryan was furious when he found out our corporate health insurance doesn't cover elective fertility treatments. Long story short, he paid out of pocket for over a year for him and her to get treated for, quote, fertility deficiencies. Needless to say, here we are a year later and still no pitter-patter of little feet. <laughs> Sounds like the missus is barren and the mister's firing blanks. <laughs> Suddenly a red blur flew across the room and exploded above the hearth. Faint sizzling could be heard in the silence as cocoa dripped down the wall over the hearth and onto the hot stone floor of the fireplace. A red Rudolph mug was fractured in front of the fire. We're working on it, Ethan. And frankly, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. So keep your goddamn mouth shut! Ryan, calm down. Honey, what's going on? Are you alright? What's wrong? I'm sorry, everyone. It's just... It's just a sore subject. Honey, could I please talk to you privately for a moment? The couple left for the kitchen, and their low, rumbling voices could be heard. Derek returned without his phone and asked what had happened. Being stuck in their present predicament with an upset host had rendered most of the guests speechless and lost in thought. After some time, the group abandoned the polite pretense that they must all stay together in the living room and began splitting up. James wandered off into their office to check emails. John went to look at the rooms upstairs. Ethan was sitting alone at the dining room table with a couple of beers, and Blair attempted to fall asleep on the couch. Derek found Melissa alone in the kitchen. Mel, you out a beer? There's another 12-pack. Check the mini-fridge in the basement. The basement light was dim as Derek descended the steps. The basement was large and broken up into side rooms. Against the far wall from the bottom of the steps was a mini-fridge. Derek's eyes were so focused on their target that he didn't notice the soft footfalls behind him. He pulled open the fridge and grabbed a can of beer. From his pocket, he produced his keys. Four down here is dirt anyways. Might as well shotgun one right here, he thought. He was just about to puncture the bottom of the can when he felt a huge blow against the side of his head. Feeling the warm stream of blood flow from his head, he was frozen in shock as his vision began to dim. Crimson blood covered the can as he dropped it noiselessly onto the dirt. 
He collapsed all at once, dead. John was exploring the upstairs when he came across the master bedroom. A spacious room without clutter, there were a couple dressers against the wall, along with two black nightstands abutting an ebony-framed bed. The silk sheets were red and seemed to stand out in gothic contrast to the rest of the room. John walked over to one of the nightstands and opened it. Inside it, there was only a leather-bound book, marked with strange-looking sigils and glyphs along the spine. Hello there. When John opened the book, the pages inside disturbed him. There were various crude drawings of monstrous humanoids, sometimes devouring or torturing people, but every hand-drawn image seemed to leap out of the page and flood John's mind with disturbing thoughts. As he turned the pages, he realized quickly that in this infernal book, written in strange pictographs, were instructions. Roman numerals existed beside every image, with the foreign picture language seeming to describe directions. John noticed an earmarked page and turned to it. The drawing was of a black seven-pointed star with small clay pots at each tip. Next to each pot was a letter. The letters were R, M, J, J, B, D, E. And at the center of the circle was another grotesque drawing of a man and a woman having sex. The woman's stomach was distended and engorged. Like all the others, there were numerals citing the instructions. But to John, the thing that filled him with profound dread was nothing to do with the book's illustration, but with the two fresh check marks made with modern gel ink next to the numerals for one and two. It was a startling realization that each of the letters at the star's tip could correspond to the names of everyone in this house. John? What are you doing here? John heard her voice from behind him. He paused for only a moment before tucking the book between the waistband of his pants and himself. Turning around, he saw Melissa holding a tray with a cup of cocoa and a couple cookies. Her suspicious eyes betrayed her phony smile. Oh, I was just uh, exploring the upstairs a bit, looking for a place to lie down. Gotta say, love the sheets. I feel like I'm in Amsterdam again. <laughs> yes, well, I'm afraid this is the master bedroom. If you follow me, I can show you the guest rooms. Would you like a cup of cocoa? Uh, n no thanks. Downstairs in the living room, Blair had fallen asleep on the leather sofa nearest the fire. The room was quiet without the rest of the party chattering about. She had only been sleeping for a few minutes when she heard someone walking, no, sneaking into the room. Through heavily squinted eyes, she watched Ethan drunkenly tiptoeing closer to the couch. He set down an empty beer bottle. Her heart began to race as he began to slowly sit down on the couch, practically on her. He began to lean over, lips pursed, and she could smell the sour alcohol on his breath. Don't even fucking try it. She opened her eyes in time to see the anger on his face. 
his features contorted into a purplish grimace as he grabbed her shoulder roughly. Look at me! I, I want you. Get the hell off me, you creep! Before she knew it, she had reached out and slapped him. In her haste, she had missed his face and struck his ear. He let out a howl as he recoiled for a moment, covering his ear. With startling speed, he flung his head forward and caught the bridge of Blair's nose with his speeding forehead, causing it to crunch and buckle. She yelled out in pain as she felt the blood beginning to gush out of both nostrils. She covered her face and braced herself for another blow when she heard a sudden noise cut through the pandemonium. Just as she let out a scream, Blair saw the rest of the party rushing into the room to investigate. For a moment, everyone stood frozen amidst the din of Blair's sobbing. Finally, James walked over and grasped Ethan's limp wrist to check for a pulse. After a moment, he simply shook his head. Melissa seemed to be in shock as she rushed over to Blair and helped her to a bedroom where she could lie down to stop her nosebleed. Ryan and the other two men began a heated discussion about what had happened, and when Ryan stormed off to the bathroom to wash his hands, the others followed. Ryan, listen to yourself. A man is dead. You need to call the police, right now, or we're all in danger of being accessories to manslaughter. I'm not calling the police until I figure out what to say. I'm the only one in danger here, not you two. Just give me a minute to think, for God's sakes. Oh, to hell with it. I'll call them myself. James, did you ever find your phone? No. Shit. Can I use yours? I seem to be missing mine as well. You know, I think that Derek had lost his too. Say, Ryan, where is Derek? What? What are you talking about? How the hell should I know? I haven't seen hide nor hair of him since your first little outburst earlier. After all the screaming, I'd expect him to show up to investigate. Got something on your mind, John? So say it. What's wrong, John? What's wrong is that our lovely murderous host here is lying to us. We are all very much in danger, aren't we, Ryan? Now you listen here. I don't know what you're getting at, but if you want to accuse me of something, you'd better get to the point soon. John felt a bead of sweat trickle down his back as he looked into those cold eyes. In two swift movements, he had produced the book from his waistband and a pistol from his jacket. He drew it level with Ryan's head. Whoa, whoa, John, easy. I found this little grimoire upstairs in your bedroom. Now you have exactly three seconds to start telling me what you're planning to do with us, or so help me, I will kill you where you stand. John, don't. Three. You cannot be serious. Two. Has everyone lost their damn mind? One. and warlocks, that's all we have time for today. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these stories of fright and fancy, power and plague, reminiscing and ritual. We here at Pulp will continue to do our best to produce the finest quality program we can for you, our listeners. 
Thank you to Mara Hershey and Krista Witchbath, and a warm thank you to the extensive contributors to this week's episode. At Cross Purposes was written by Gustav Grift and starred the vocal talents of Davis McGraw, Zachary Husband, Dominic Vanka, and Cody Sullivan. All Snowed In Part 1 was written by C.A. Sullivan and was performed by the talented Kyle Washburn, Carrie Cantara, Jamie Danner, Cody Sullivan, Zachary Richardson, Dominic Vanka, Chris Goulet, and Zachary Dow. Pulp from Beyond the Veil is co-produced by Zachary Husband. Before you go, please consider doing us a favor and leave a review on your thoughts of the program. And if you'd like to help support this program's growth, head on over to patreon.com slash pulpfrombeyond to leave your pledge. Finally, thank you to all the listeners who've given us feedback already and told us what you think. We love hearing from you, so please reach out at our email, pulpfrombeyond at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's all for now. Until next time, this is Pulp, signing off.